Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you now after the Spirit moves so powerfully, and he's way better at it than me, but here I am. So uh, I hope, man, I hope that you have felt the presence of the Lord here this morning because he is here, and he has a message for us this morning, and I think we're getting a picture of what that is and his faithfulness and his love for us. Whew. So we're continuing in our New Life series. I hope and pray that each of us have experienced that new life. And uh, if you haven't experienced that new life, as we talk, if you feel like the Holy Spirit is moving you to make a decision or to do something about the life uh, that you could have in Jesus, I encourage you, don't wait. Um, Deal with that today. But last week, if you were with us, we covered the first half of Colossians 1. Um, I knew that we wouldn't get through it all. Uh, we'll see if we get through Colossians 1 and finish it today. Um, I'm open to that not happening, so we'll see what happens. But uh, in the first half of Colossians 1, we talked about uh, where Paul encourages the young church in Colossae because of the good reports he's gotten about them. Paul hasn't met that church. He's never been in that church gathering. Um, he's met some of the people, but um, he doesn't know that church well. He's just heard reports. We also read that Paul prays they will have complete knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. Um, you know, uh, that's a prayer. Um, boy, that's a good prayer. If, if you are one of those people you like to write things down and you like to pray from like a list or from something, that's a good one to pray over yourself and over those around you for that complete knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. If, if the majority of the spiritual food you get in a week is from me or from somebody you listen to, um, you're not doing it right. <laughs> There's a Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, and He is the one. That's why, like Melissa shared, she said, I don't have songs, and I was like, go to God's Word, man. There's nothing better. I can't give you anything better than what He's got, and so open His Word and allow the Holy Spirit to speak. Um, both through his word and from his word. He will speak in powerful ways. And so um, whatever that struggle you might be having is, I know it almost sounds like a cheap answer, like, well, just read your Bible. Uh, but man, when you get it, you get it. It's one of those things, you know, it's like an inside story. It's like you had to be there to, to really get it. Until you've had that moment and that uh, where God imparts that complete knowledge of a scripture or something where we get that spiritual wisdom or understanding um, there's nothing like that. There's no sermon that can do that. There's, no, there's nothing other than the Spirit of God that can illuminate those things in a way. And I want to pray that over us. I do pray that over us every morning, but especially this morning, that uh, as we look at the second half of chapter 1, uh, if you've read that this week, you, you notice it is a theologically heavy chapter. Um, it has so much in there. Uh, in just a few verses, there's so much in that second half of Colossians 1. I hope you took the opportunity to read it over um, the, a couple times this past week because just spending an hour talking about it this morning, uh, it's just not going to do it justice. So um, some of you are focused on the whole hour part. It probably won't be a full hour, all right? Chill out. Uh, <laughs> but even though it took a whole hour, it's not going to be enough, all right? Because it is so good. And I hope that uh, as we continue to go through Colossians, you'll take that opportunity to read the portion of Scripture multiple times throughout the week because as you've noticed, uh, some of you noticed this when we've done this in the past, it just does something different. You know, you, you get here on a Sunday morning and you've kind of been dwelling and marinating on a certain chapter and um, there's a lot of power to that. 
But before we jump in today, I'd like to pause to understand what we're about to read or what we're about to discuss, because verses 15 to 20 are written in poetic form. Uh, it's a change in the, in the uh, type of, of writing. If you ever uh, are wondering, if you want more information on this, I, I recommend these guys a lot, the Bible Project guys. They do some awesome videos, and they actually do one on the literary types. Uh, if you've never studied literary types, um, then you're missing out on what the Bible has for you because um, just in general, you know, you read a, a biography differently than you read a poem. Um, and so the Bible is just like that. There are different literary forms the Bible was written in, and they each have a purpose. There's a reason they were written in certain ways. I love the Bible Project does a quick video on it, and it really breaks it down so you can understand um, just what they mean. And then it has separate videos for each of the different literary forms so you can really break down and understand why did authors write in different ways? Why is there not just one consistent literary form? Um, it's because our God is a God of art and he loves the beauty of everything, even language and words. And so uh, you do need to understand and, and recognize that verses 15 to 20 are written in poetic form. Many Bible translations, if you open them up, you'll see that it breaks it up differently. Um, if you are like an old King James, that's where I started, then everything's just written the exact same way for the most part. Um, and you, you miss out on some of those things uh, without further study. If you're reading uh, New Living Translations, which is what I generally preach from on a Sunday morning, or um, some of those other newer translations, you'll notice that they break this down and they, they actually form it into a poetic form. The reason that Paul wrote this as a poem is he wants the reader to stop. If you were to come across a poem, uh, if you're like me, you acknowledge, first off, I'm pretty dense, and so uh, it's going to take me some extra mental work to get through a poem, to try to figure out what are they even talking about, all this flowery language and this weird stuff, like I don't get it, and so I know that I'm going to have to put a little extra work into understanding this. Paul was creating an opportunity for those reading this letter to stop. Because now the literary form has changed and you're going to read a poem. Uh, and like is true to Paul, Paul was, if you don't know uh, much about Paul, he was brilliant. Uh, he was naturally just incredibly intelligent. He was uh, a scholar of scholars uh, and then Jesus found him uh, and changed his life and God continued to use some of his skills. And one of his skills was in language. Um, not so much in his sentence forms because, um, man, he can write some run-on sentences. If you've ever studied Paul, he... He can do a whole chapter in one sentence. Uh, but there are some things like his poem that just have a, an, an incredible art and beauty to them. And I, I don't know how well you'll be able to see this, but uh, if you break down 15 to 20, you'll notice that it's in four sections. And there's like a mirror-like symmetry to, to, to Paul's poem here. Uh, the first section and the last section match. They're, they're similar. And then the middle two sections, two and three, are very similar as well. Uh, it's kind of the way that he wrote this poem to have this kind of artistic mirroring image um, to itself. Um, and I just think it's really cool. Uh, I love studying the word to this kind of depth and realizing like it's more than just some words on a page. It's more than just information. There's beauty here that you can pull out, which is why I always encourage you, don't just sit down and read random portions of your Bible, but as you read it, study it. Uh, draw from other people who have studied that, that book or, or the Bible itself. Read from commentaries and other things and, and let others speak to you. And certainly, above all else, sit and let the Holy Spirit illuminate it to you. 
Uh, you'll also notice if you, if you break this down and study it further, sections one and four, kind of the bookends of, of this poem, there's the common language in it. Well, part of that mirror is in him, through him, and to him. Now, obviously, depending on your translation, those words won't be the exact same, but uh, in, in both of those sections, there's in him and through him and to him in those sections. I just think it's so fascinating to me the level of attention and detail Paul puts into this. This was not just Paul writing off the top of his head. This was intentional that he put it in here this way because he really wants to draw the reader's attention to this poem because there's, there's something here that's there's power in this. One of the most obvious parallels in this poem uh, is he makes the connection between original creation, the world around us, and everything that God has created, and God's new work of creation, because uh, there was original creation and its intention, and then we broke it, and then there's God's new creation, uh, the, His new life inside of us. So let's dive in. Uh, verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. If you have a, whatever translation you have, very likely if you have section headings, uh, I know in the New Living it says Christ is supreme. Uh, That's kind of the heading for this poem and certainly that's what Paul is getting at here. He's pointing uh, at how Christ fulfills the role that Adam and Eve were originally intended to. God's intention was that Adam and Eve would be His image on this earth. It says in Genesis that uh, when, when God creates, He says that man was created in what? In the image of God. They were created to perfectly reflect God on this earth. That, that was their design. That was their, God's intention when he created uh, man and woman on this earth. But, surprise, surprise, we messed it up. Uh, and we broke that whole thing, and we were not the perfect image of God on this earth. So God sends Jesus, and if you do a lot of Bible study, you'll know uh, Jesus is very often referred to as the, the new Adam, Uh, He is Adam, but the perfect version of Adam. He fulfills the role Adam was always intended to fulfill. Uh, And in this, that's what Paul is getting at here, is that Christ was the true Adam. He came and he did perfectly reflect God in the image of God. Paul's also speaking to the deity of Christ. Uh, He's noting that Christ was both pre-existent and supreme over all creation. If, if you existed before time, what does that make you? Eternal. Yeah, timeless. You are eternal. If you existed before time ever existed, then you don't have a beginning and you don't have an end. And so to refer to Christ as pre-existent means He is eternal, which if you're eternal, uh, you're God. So this is uh, his way of saying in, in nice poetic language, Jesus is deity. He is God. And if you learn anything from Paul, if you read a lot of Paul, you'll know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Paul was not polytheistic, meaning he did not believe there were multiple gods. He believed there was one God. And so you'll never find in the Bible the language Trinity. You'll never see that word Trinity. But by Paul referring to Jesus as pre-existent, as eternal, as God, there can only be one conclusion, that he believes that Jesus is God as God the Father is God, and he doesn't believe there are two gods. So obviously he's referring to one deity, and his physical representation here on earth is known as Jesus, and he was the image of God here on this earth. 
just in this one verse. There's so much theology that Paul is solidifying for the Colossian church. And to truly uh, appreciate just how much he's solidifying here, you'd, ha- you'd have to do a little research into, into the times and, and what exactly was uh, the false teachings of the time. But just in this one verse, he stops so many false teachings right off the bat by saying that Jesus was preexistent. He is God. He is supreme over all creation. He is the one true God. He is God's representative here on earth. He is the image of God. So uh, I think it's, it's just awesome. Um, there's so much more to study in that verse. Um, so I encourage you, if you like to study, do that. Dive into that verse. Uh, but moving on, verse 16. For through him, God created everything. In the heavenly realms and on earth, he made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Remember from our poetic symmetry here that in him, through him, for him, or to him uh, language. There it is. Another deeply theological and rich passage here. There's no denying that Paul considers Christ more than just a good prophet or teacher. And even from the very beginning, people have tried to portray Jesus as just a really good prophet or a a very good teacher, a good moral teacher, um, which if you've... uh, the name is escaping me, but um, one of the apologists of our time uh, does the uh, Jesus was either a liar, lunatic, or Lord study. Um, that's, that's a great argument. Uh, if you've never seen that, Google that and look at that because Jesus couldn't. There's only three options. He's either a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but portrayed that he was. He's a lunatic. Uh, he, really, he wasn't God, but he really thought he was. He genuinely thought he was. Or he was Lord. He actually was who he said he was. You can't claim that Jesus was a good moral teacher. That Then that's all he was. A good moral teacher wouldn't say, hey, I'm God, worship me. Uh, that would be a lunatic if he wasn't God. And so he must have been God, and he was. So um, if you've ever in, been in conversation with somebody and they say, well, I believe, I, I believe Jesus existed, which is like beyond doubt. Uh, histor- no his- historian worth his salt would ever say Jesus didn't exist. But they'll say, I just believe he was a good moral teacher. There's a lot of good lessons that he taught, but that's it. Um, not a possibility. He was God, or he was a crazy person. And so that's what Paul's getting at here. He was God. Everything was created through him, by him, for him. Uh, this is important to note because uh, you want to remember that Paul is always, and this letter, a lot of this letter uh, is he's, elevating Christ in order to refute the false religions around Colossae, that they were trying to mix in saying, well, Jesus is good, but so are all these other religions, so we'll just mesh them all together. And Paul was making it very clear, no, 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 Jesus belongs in a whole different realm than these false religions. He's different than everything. You can't mix anything in with Jesus. He alone deserves the place of worship. Paul is clearly pointing out how the things, the things these false religions worship were created by Christ and for Christ. Um, saying like, hey, whatever that piece of wood is or whatever that image is or whatever that thing is, whether you're worshiping the sun or whether you're worshiping this little piece of wood that you whittled yourself, guess what? It was created by Christ and for Christ. And to worship these things is to abuse their purpose. And that's kind of, that's a big point for them is that uh, it's wrong of us to think, well, God didn't create that man created. God created everything. But very often, the way that we use it or the way that we worship it abuses its purpose. Everything that we know God created, it's our abuse of it 
that becomes the problem. When we abuse it and we misuse it for its unintended purposes. Paul's also making it clear that there is power and there are authority structures outside of what we know and what we can see. Um, that was clear. He's acknowledging that in the early church times. That was a, a clear thing that they were very well aware of, that this spiritual realm existed outside of what we know and see. Uh, in our Western culture, we tend to uh, try to use only physical evidence to, to prove things, and so we can try to dismiss these spiritual realms and the, these powers and authorities, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, they exist. They're very real, uh, and God created many of the things in these, uh, or created everything in those realms as well, though some are still in rebellion to Him to this day, even they were still created through Him and for Him. And yet we have things like the, the demons and the demonic realm, that they are in rebellion to him, but he created even them. And even in their destruction, they will bring him glory. Moving on, verse 17. It says, He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Not only did everything initially come into existence because of Christ, and you might say, uh, because again, false religions would say, well, God might have created it, but it evolved beyond God's control. Uh, I've definitely heard that from people. Yeah, yeah, God created mankind, but we exceeded his limitations, and we've, we've become our own gods, or we've done blah, 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 blah. Everything, even still, is only held together because of Christ. That's Paul's argument here. There is nothing that can get outside of God's control. The, the fact that it exists is only because God allows it to exist. Everything currently exists because of Christ. Did uh, any of you get a chance to watch that video I sent out this week over the app by Louis Giglio? Oh, man, isn't that cool? It's amazing. If you've never seen that video before, uh, I'm, I'm a nerd. So like that first half of the video, I really get into that stuff. Um, and I'd encourage you, if you really enjoyed the first half of that video, Look into it because they've learned even more since that video came out, uh, and we've realized even how, how much larger the, the universe and, and beyond our universe than space and time exist, how large it all is even uh, farther beyond that. But there's something he gets to at the end of the uh, video. There's a protein molecule he talks about, and man, isn't that cool as he shows you like the, the image of that, that molecule called laminin and how it's, it's the kind of the glue that holds our bodies together. Um, so powerful. I think it's super cool. So if you didn't watch it, uh, you can always go back into your app and go into your inbox, and you can find that message right there. Um, you can find it there, or there's this little thing called the news feed in your app, in the app, and you scroll back to, uh, I think it was Tuesday or so that I sent it out, um, and you'll, you can find that um, message there as well in the link to the video. Uh, or just ask me, and I'll text it to you or something. I'll get, I'll get you the link somehow. It's a really, really cool video. Um, but it talks about how uh, this, this thing that holds our bodies together, uh, it's in the shape of a cross, and it's just so powerful to see, like, uh, just the, as science, the more we learn, the more it just continues to point toward Christ. He is what holds everything together. Colossians chapter 1:18. moving on. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. 
This is where Paul switches between uh, thoughts uh, from the original creation as a whole to the new creation in believers. So first he makes the case for original creation. It's all by him, through him, and for him. And now he's switching to new creation, by him, for him, through him. Uh, uh, The new creation in all believers, this new life that this entire series is wrapped around. Paul is is exalting Christ above any who would try to steer the church in any direction other than that of Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning. He is supreme. Paul is not laying it on lightly here. He is making it very clear. The head of the church is Jesus. Not us, not our policies, not our strategies, not our elder board, not anything else. It's Jesus. He's the head of the church. We all follow him and him alone. He's the beginning, supreme and first. Colossians 1.19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Seems like a simple verse, but man, there's a lot in this. Paul has already stated that Christ is the image of God, the perfect image of God. They understood Jesus' humanity. Many of them had heard about him. It hasn't been long since Jesus walked the earth. So there's no question at this point that Jesus did walk the earth. Many people knew him, had, had seen him. Maybe they went to one of the things where Jesus was speaking or they heard about all the hubbub around Jerusalem and all the things going on. There's no question he lived. They understood his humanity. Now Paul states that all the fullness of God dwelled in Christ. Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God. Paul was making that very clear. All the fullness of God, and they were very clear that Jesus was completely human because he died, uh, and you gotta kinda be a human being to die. You gotta, you gotta be fully human, or else you can't really die. And so he died, so he was human, and he was 100% God. See, when I was in college, I paid a lot of money to learn really fancy terms about things like this. Uh, and there's a fancy term called the hypostatic union. I know, it was worth that much just to learn that word. Uh, but that's all it means, is that this, this weird concept that uh, Jesus could have existed as both 100% man and 100% God. Uh, some of you know I grew up as a Jehovah Witness, and one of the things they do is they make the Bible make sense. Now, I don't know about you, but it comforts me to know that God just doesn't make sense, that there's this being that exists outside of my ability to understand Because he's so big, he's so amazing, he's so awesome, he's so powerful that my tiny little brain just cannot grasp who he is. That I can't wrap my brain around some of the concepts of uh, even to stop and think, how can something have no beginning? You want to lose some sleep? Think about that tonight. (laughs) How can God not have a beginning? How, How did he come into existence? He didn't. How? Doesn't make any sense. That's who God is. He doesn't always make sense. And the thing the Jehovah Witness religion does is they make him make sense. That's why it's so appealing to so many people because, oh, how can Jesus, Jesus couldn't have been 100% man, 100% God. No, he was Michael the archangel that God recreated as a human being, named him Jesus. Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah, that's easy to digest. Guess what? God's not easy to digest. Some of the, some of the things that, uh, of who he is, you'll never understand this side of heaven. You might not understand him on the other side. I don't know, haven't been there yet. But he's just that big, and he's that amazing. He was fully man and fully God. Verse 20. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. 
We have been reconciled to God because of Jesus' death on the cross. There's power in this word of reconciliation because what, what does that mean? It means that at one point, man and God were aligned and something happened. If you've ever had to be reconciled to somebody, it means there was a relationship, things were good, and something happened. Now, what happened in our case is we sinned. We broke fellowship with God, and we needed to be reconciled to God. And Jesus is who did that. He did the work of reconciliation because we couldn't, we couldn't fix it. We broke it to a place that we could not fix it. Saying sorry didn't quite cut it with God because now we were imperfect. And God's entire creation was designed around the concept that we would be perfect, that we would be without sin. And so something needed to happen. And so Jesus steps in and he died on the cross to reconcile us. Paul finishes his poem by explaining how original creation and new creation are both possible because of Christ. Verse 21. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Paul is also saying that just as the Colossians were once far from God, so all of us were far from God before we knew him. See, uh, if you remember the original audience that Paul is writing to, he's writing to predominantly non-Jewish people, people who were Gentiles uh, is the word for that. And so, but he's also making it clear in this statement is he doesn't refer to their fact, to the fact that they were Gentiles, that that's why they were far from God. Paul specifically leaves that language out here because he's making it clear. It wasn't just your nationality or your upbringing or your heritage that made you distant from God. It was your sin. That's what separated you from God. It's not as if when a Jewish person is born, they're born closer to God than us. It's our sin that keeps us from him. And true for the Colossians as it was for us. And so uh, there's an encouragement there for the Colossians to know I was just as distant from God as those who claim they are God's chosen. We were both as distant as we could be from God because it's sin that separated us from Him. Paul explains how Christ solved that through His death in verse 22. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. I think sometimes we just read things a little too fast. Because if this verse didn't make you stop, drop to your knees and worship. Man, this verse is powerful, what it says here. Do you accept what this verse says as truth? Or do you still listen to the lies of the enemy? My experience, it is extraordinarily rare to find somebody who, who learns how to live out of this verse on a regular basis. Most people have to constantly, constantly remind themselves of what this verse says and what this verse means. Do you grasp how when you stand before God in prayer, you stand before Him as holy and blameless. Do you understand the concept of that? You ever heard the song, I Can Only Imagine? Man, if that song hasn't moved you, you need a shot of adrenaline. Uh, because the thought of standing before God, and it's like, I can only imagine. What will I do? Will I be able to speak? Will I say anything? Will I fall on my face? 
But if you just now in this moment think of yourself standing before God, so often, just like some of the prophetic visions we see in the Bible, they see God and they think, oh, I'm undone. I'm going to die. Why? It's because of our brokenness. It's because of how much we know we've wronged God. And we constantly view ourselves through this lens of, I'm a messed up, dirty, rotten sinner. And there might be a healthy part to that, to know that we're still broken and we still need Jesus, but when we stand before Him in prayer, He sees us as holy and blameless because He sees us through the blood of Christ, which completely washes away our impurities. And so when you pray to Him, when you're begging Him for that thing, stop thinking, He's never going to answer this because I'm just so messed up, because I'm so evil because i just constantly break his rules that is not the way he looks at you and some of us will spend the rest of our lives trying to wrestle with this thought but man as i as i told you last sunday it really hit me when god kind of spoke to me about how how often killian just in this morning again killian comes dashing into the sanctuary runs up and jumps into my arms and it's just i'm just reminded how he was corrected a few times yesterday. Uh, and he didn't run in and, and, and say, do, do you still want to hug me? Like, do you still want to embrace me? Man, I know I, I dropped the ball yesterday. I know I messed up a lot of times. I know I specifically disobeyed you. I know I looked you in the eyes and disobeyed you and, you, and it drives you nuts. Or do you still want to hug me? But how often do we approach God that way? God, do you, do you still want me here? Do you still want me to hug you? Do you still want to embrace me? Or, or, do, or are you still looking at me through my last mistake? And a good parent knows that's just not how it is. When you look at your child, you see the, the beautiful creation they are. Doesn't, maybe not in the first five minutes after they specifically disobey you, but because uh, we're still broken. But in those moments where you, you look at your kid and all you see is the perfection of who they are. All you see are the positives, the blessings, the amazing parts of them. And just know that's how God sees you every single moment because he sees you through the blood of Christ. He sees you based on who he is and what he's done for you, not because of your last mistake. doesn't look at you through the lens of your brokenness, but through Jesus' lens. And that is amazing. And Paul knew, just as you would struggle with this, that the Colossian church would struggle as well. It's, just, it's the same thought that Paul expresses in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Man, amen. If you could learn to live in that verse, who man, what God could do through you. If you could wake up in the morning and say, hey, God, it's me, perfect and blameless, holy. Might get a little weird, but uh, if you could walk through your day that way, knowing that, oh, man, I messed up again. I said something I shouldn't have said. I, I acted in a way I shouldn't have acted. I did something I shouldn't have done. You repent, but then you move on, knowing that God sees you through the lens of Jesus. And boy, is that a good lens to be seen through. Because it erases all the impurities. It erases all the mistakes. It erases all the stuff. 
Because the Bible says multiple times and in different colorful ways, your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. It's completely removed from, from God's presence and God's mind. You are blameless before God. And there is so much power in that. Hallelujah. But then Paul reminds his readers, because he knows how quickly they will forget this, in verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. Paul knew they would struggle with this. The, 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 the next thought after telling them just how blameless and holy they stand in the presence of God in, he tells them, but don't walk away from this truth. Don't allow yourself to drift from this. He's telling them, dwell in this thought, in this place where you grasp the goodness of God and his love for you and, and you're standing before him. It is so hard to accept this truth and live in it as broken people. It's so difficult. Uh, this week, as I was preparing the sermon, I thought, uh, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, and I was like, man, the best one that comes to my mind is when I constantly wonder, like, why is my wife with me? Like, honestly, I have no idea why sometimes. Uh, other than, true story, we waited until we were married to get her glasses. Uh, <laughs> that helped a lot. Uh, it's a rough season after she got glasses, but, uh, and I wonder, like, I'm not that special. Like, why is she with me? Sometimes, you know, you, I don't know if you've ever had that thought with your spouse and, and you just wonder, but man, it's a thousand times more powerful sometimes with God. It's like, why would he want me? I'm so messed up. I'm so broken, man. The, the amount, we are intimately aware of just how many times we've broken fellowship with him. And yet he's always right there. He never leaves our side. It's amazing. Because we know our brokenness. And yet, Paul encourages them, don't forget this truth. Don't walk away from it. Verses 24 to 27. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. Again, it's, to me, it's, it's amazing if you actually study this, just this half of the chapter, how so clearly Paul uh, puts forth this idea of the Trinity because he, first he, he acknowledges that Jesus was preexistent, and now he's saying Christ lives in you. But Jesus made it very clear it wasn't him technically that lives inside us, but the Holy Spirit. And so if Paul is putting forth this idea that Jesus lives in us, then Jesus and the Holy Spirit must be the exact same person. And that's just the Trinity he's backing up in this idea uh, of this. And again, remember, the church has never met Paul they would only have heard about him from others. So uh, this letter uh, and this part of it, um, this is the well. This letter as a whole is really this church's first interaction with Paul. They've heard a lot of stories about Paul, some good, some bad. But this letter is the first time he's personally interacting with them. So here he is giving a little bit of his credentials to this church uh, as he explains his purpose in 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 writing this letter uh, and who what Paul's purpose is as a whole. 
It's also, again, to truly appreciate what Paul is saying, you have to understand the culture. And it was so scandalous to put non-Jewish people in the same standing before God as Jewish people. Man, this was so scandalous in their time. To say that uh, a, a person who has absolutely no connection to Judaism and no connection to the, to the 12 tribes has the same standing as somebody who is through and through a Hebrew at heart and in heritage, that they have the same standing before God. And this, this would start fights. This, this got people killed to say things like this. And yet here is Paul saying exactly that. Paul is saying how they can know that what he is saying is true because Christ lives in them. That's the assurance they have. And that's the assurance you have. That's why so many believers can say, hey, I'm, I'm ready. I'm, if you've ever been with somebody at the end of their life and they knew Jesus and they had that intimate relationship with him and they have that peace of like, hey, I know where I'm going. That's where that assurance comes from. Christ in them. The hope of glory. Verses 28 and 29 as we close. So we tell others about Christ. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us. We want to present them to God perfect in their relationship to Christ. That's why I work and struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Paul is saying he's willing to suffer and put in all the effort and the struggle that he does for the sake of the gospel. And remember, he writes this from prison. So this is like real. This is, a very, this is not Paul reflecting back on, oh, the bad days. This is him saying, man, I'm in prison now. And I'm willing to do this a thousand times over for the sake of the gospel. That's, so they grasp, this Colossian church understands. This guy, it's not just philosophy. I don't know if you've ever been taught by somebody who's at, never actually done something, but they're teaching you how to do it. And I don't know about you, but I, I struggle listening to that person. Because um, it's like, wait, you've never done this. You don't actually have any practical understanding of this. And Paul is saying, man, I have the practical understanding of suffering. I'm currently suffering as I write this letter. And so th- this to me creates an authenticity to this letter. He also makes it very clear that it is only because of Christ's mighty power at work in him that Paul is able to accomplish anything. It seems almost as if Paul is elevating himself onto this pedestal and then he cuts the whole pedestal off and says the only reason is because of Jesus, because of his mighty power at work within me. So a question I have as we close this morning, does this wonderful message of reconciliation Does it compel us to tell others about this message? As we talk to somebody who, when you hear hopelessness, when you hear brokenness in someone's life, when you hear their distance from God, does it burn in your heart and in your soul like, man, this person needs this message? Or do we frequently put our own comfort before our need to tell others? Do you feel that, that, that burn, that, that fire in your heart, and you go, oh, man, I don't want to get myself in trouble here. I better, I better put, this, you know, put this on silent because I don't want to offend anybody. Or do we feel so compelled to say, you know, I understand that this might be weird and you might look at me a certain way after this, but man, we're talking eternal, eternal life here. And I, and I just need to say this to you. As we close, I want to sum up some of the huge theological concepts that Paul hits here. 
Christ is fully God, yet fully man. Christ has existed since before time began, and so he is eternal. Everything was created through Christ, for Christ, and continues to exist only because of Christ. It is through Christ that we all have been reconciled to God, regardless of our heritage or past. It doesn't matter what family you were born into. It's of no importance how much happened before you met Jesus. You have the same standing as anybody who has ever received Jesus before the Father. Because it's Christ in you that gives you standing, that allows you to stand holy and blameless in His sight. I would strongly encourage you to pray over that poem specifically and ask God to give you complete knowledge of of His will, spiritual wisdom, and the understanding needed for that passage. I promise you I can't break it down as good as the Holy Spirit. I did my best to give my uh, interpretation of this verse and, and my thoughts on this, but the Holy Spirit will blow it out of, the, out, out of the water and knock it out of the park so much better than I ever could. So give Him the opportunity. Don't just listen to other people's understanding of the Bible, but sit, read it, meditate on it. Allow the Holy Spirit an opportunity to speak. Don't just read the Word of God out of obligation or as a check, checking off a to-do list item. Allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to your hearts that, he, that it would completely transform you. Not just hit you in your mind and transform some of the way you think, but that it would transform you holistically, every part of you, that you could embrace the new life that you have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. What an amazing day it's already been. And yet you have so much more to do this day. Your power is not going to stop working just because we walk out of this building. As a matter of fact, I believe it, it should come upon us even stronger as we leave because we enter the mission field the second we step out of this door. We go into a place where there are people who are hurting, who don't know about this message of reconciliation. They don't know just how supreme you are over all creation, that everything they know was created through you and for you. Lord, would you compel our hearts that we would, as we engage this broken world, that first, as we pray, we would stand before you and acknowledge and and truly understand the holy and blameless place that we stand in when we stand before you because you look at us through the lens of your son's blood and would we in that place ask for your power to come upon us for the work that needs to be accomplished none of us will make it through this week without being confronted with the brokenness of this world just how desperately this world needs you jesus would you make it clear our individual missions this week as we engage this world, that you would speak to us clearly on what you want to accomplish through us this week, how you want to use your power through us to uniquely engage this broken world this week. Thank you for your goodness and your love for us. Lord, thank you for the, the women in this room, that they would be celebrated this day for the amazing ways that you have worked through them 
for so many in our community in this world. Would we all be blessed as we go out into your presence today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great week. Happy Mother's Day. And don't forget to read Colossians 2 this week, all right? Read it every day this week. Have a good week.